Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the LSE and to the Department of Geography and Environment to its uh, first public lecture for the year, which is Why Cities Succeed and Fail Today. And we have three speakers. So, in fact, Professor Michael Storper, Dr. Thomas Kemeny, and Dr. Najib McCarran. Um, if you want to tweet about the lecture, you have a hashtag, which is LSE. Uh, city, uh, so you can uh, broadcast whatever you're seeing here at the, at the conference. And uh, without, owing oh, no technical difficulties, will this uh, lecture would be posted online. Uh, it's my turn. My name is Andres Rodriguez Posse. I'm your chairman today. And uh, it's my turn to introduce uh, Michael Storper, who is the main speaker today in this uh, Geography and Environment public lecture. And what can I say about Michael? It's, uh, I've been I've known Michael now for quite some time, since the first time he came to the LSE, and I've been a co-author, but above all, uh, a friend. And I think Michael is, without any doubt, one of the most prominent economic and human geographers today. In these fields, he is at the forefront of pushing the theoretical and empirical boundaries, and he is a very influential international policy uh, figure. He has this... Uh, very well-earned reputation as a shaper of ideas on globalization and on local and regional development, on institutions, or on the geographical implications of uh, geography, uh, of trade and technology flows. Many of the new concepts that many of us use today, things in economic geographies, such as untraded and interdependencies, face-to-face -face contact, or bus, have been either coined or popularized by him. Michael has conducted uh, path-breaking research in many areas. He has been one of the leading sc scholars in promoting the debate between economic geographers and geographical economists, looking for common grounds and proposing, as a result, new directions of research. He has played a very prominent role in the development of regional economic development theory and empirics, and he has, no doubt, been at the forefront of setting up the theoretical and empirical framework of modern economic uh, geography. His uh, research has filled important gaps in the discipline, and his work with his solid evidence-based approach and its competitive dimension has provided invaluable insights for scholars and policymakers alike. In addition, uh, what can I say about Michael? He's a truly prolific author. has published 12 very influential books and monographs, Two of them, including one that he's going to be presenting today in the last 24 months, which I believe are going to become classics. And he has more than 100 papers in international peer-reviewed journals. He's extremely well-cited. As of today, looking at uh, Google Scholar, he had more than 27,000 citations, which is quite a feat. He has been a rich source of inspiration to a new generation of economic geographers, <coughs> He has contributed with his work to move the discipline towards what I consider a much more innovative and policy-relevant orientation. But most of all, I think we are highly privileged to have him as a professor here with us at the LSE. Today, he's going to present a book which is called The Rise and Fall of Urban Economies, which compares LA and San Francisco. But in fact, it's a very much a London book. Why? Because every single one of the authors has a London connection. It's not just Michael Stolper who has been with us at the LSE for the last, and correct me if I'm wrong, 15 years, 
But Najee McCarran, who is sitting over there, started his academic career here, like many of you, doing the MSc in local economic development, suffering people like Michael and myself. And not just that, he went then to continue working with Michael uh, at UCLA and then has come back to our rival but sister university at the University of London, uh, University College London, where he's now a lecturer. Of course, Tom Kameny, he has been one that has had an opposite. He was Tom's, uh, Michael's student in, uh, in L.A., then decided that he wanted to live in a truly global city, not like the California cities that you haven't studied there, and came to London where he was with us. We had the privilege, actually, to have him with us for two years. And sadly, now he's moved. Uh, it's a gain, massive gain for Southampton. So uh, uh, there as a assistant professor, as a lecturer in Southampton. And I'm told that the only author... I don't know who's Tanner Osman and who's unfortunately not here, is also a Londoner, despite the fact that he has decided to go for smaller cities like LA or lesser cities like LA. <laughs> so without further ado, I'm just going to leave you with Michael Storper and his uh, presentation of the book, The Rise and Fall of Urban Economies. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Andres, for um, that uh, introduction. I'm always embarrassed by those kinds of things, but uh, I'll accept it. It's better to be, better to be praised than not, I suppose. Um, so, uh, yes, I want to talk about this book that uh, this team of four of us produced through uh, a joint research effort that extended over maybe six years, I think. We slaved away at it. And... Uh, this is the book, the book cover, recently out from Stanford University Press. And um, we started with a problem. So California, uh, for those of you who've never heard of it, is a pretty big place. It has 38 million people, and it has several um, large metropolitan areas. The, uh, there are two very big ones, that of Greater Los Angeles and San Francisco. And we wanted to um, think about the transition that the metropolitan areas of California made in, during the period from the 1970s onward when we commonly think about uh, that being the, the, the kind of the end of what we would have called the post-war 20th century economy and the advent of the new economy. And why do we say that? Because we know uh, retrospectively that the industries that were the propulsive forces of uh, wealth and incomes in the post-war period from the end of the Second World War to the early 1970s um, were based essentially in capital-intensive manufacturing, and these made many cities and countries wealthy at that time but that starting in the 1970s, those industries no longer served as great creators of employment and no longer as the centers of the creation of high-wage employment and no longer were the center 
of where capital was moving in the, in the economies in the sense that they had, they had become mature industries that weren't highly entrepreneurial anymore, but rather characterized by large, stable companies. And they were important in the economy, but as it were, not where the action was. The action changed, and it changed toward what we commonly call new technologies, notably the IT revolution, but a few others as well. They changed in another couple of ways. One is the globalization of production, so much more open uh, trading system in the world. That's commonly, we date the current globalization from around 1972, and open capital markets, which started to become a feature of the capitalist world in that period. And so the geography of employment and incomes in this period since roughly the early 1970s is very different from the geography of employment and incomes in the previous one. This is true at different geographical scales between countries, but also within them among cities and regions. And here's the example that brings us to our case. In 1970, Greater Los Angeles was ranked fourth among U.S. metro regions in per capita personal income. The San Francisco Bay Area was ranked first. In 2010, Greater Los Angeles was ranked 25th. San Francisco is still first. Now, to put this in perspective, Los Angeles was the U.S.'s and in many ways the world's greatest economic development story from 1910 to 1970. For those of you who don't know it, it is truly astonishing as an example of regional economic development. Its population grew 50-fold from 1910 to, 19, well, to 2010 and 24-fold from 1910 to 1970. And moreover, this quantitative growth was very good in qualitative terms. Los Angeles was not a high-income metropolitan area in the early 20th century. It was kind of a frontier town in the middle of nowhere, and it was only half the size of San Francisco in 1910. But Los Angeles added millions and millions of people and it added high numbers of people decade after decade while steadily climbing the ranks of income of U.S. metropolitan regions such that by 1970 it was in in quasi-convergence with the older and more, we might more kind of settled San Francisco Bay Area. So there was... There was great quantitative growth in in L.A. and in the Bay Area, by the way, but much more down south. And they converged in terms of income. And then this convergence process reverses. What happens is, since 1970, L.A. diverges downward from the San Francisco Bay Area. And in 2010, we find a 30% divergence favorable to San Francisco. So this is truly an astonishing uh, story of growth and performance and then reversal. So why did L.A. fall behind? Why did it diverge from its uh, northern neighbor after 1970? Well, this is an interesting question, I think, if you're in California, and especially if you're in Southern California. You should want to know why things messed up so badly uh, with the new economy. 
But we framed the book, and I think it's the right way to frame it, as a using this deep dive into two metropolitan areas in a way that we think illustrates questions about metropolitan development in the face of overall economic change that are applicable much more generally, in the sense that with every major period of economic development, there is turbulence in the ranks of city regions, not just in America, but in almost any certainly developed country that we can think of. There are simply winners and losers in every period, and the winners in one period are not uh, coextensive. They're not always the same set of winners in the next period. So we see disruption in processes of convergence of income as distinctive patterns of winners and losers emerge from one period to another. Now, why did we just look at two city regions to examine this question? For those of you who are deeply immersed in the field of urban and regional studies, you know that there are large-scale, there's large-scale comparative research, that is research using large numbers of city, city regions that try to examine and identify the sources of growth and decline uh, across many metropolitan areas. In the United States, for example, there are 337 officially designated metropolitan areas. And we can compare, the, we can identify, certainly econometrically, the characteristics of, the, uh, of cities in relationship to their uh, patterns of income and population change. And these structural determinants are pretty much a feature of the, uh, of the literature on, uh, or, or, uh, on cities and regions. So we know generally, for example, why New York is a lot richer than Brownsville, Texas. Brownsville, Texas happening to be the poorest U.S. metropolitan area with a per capita income of about 23,000 U.S. dollars. To give you a comparison, San Francisco or uh, Boston or Washington, D.C. have per capita incomes three times that level. Now, this is all within one country. This is not differences between countries, but within one country. So we're talking about very substantial differences in the level of economic development. And we know generally what the class of cities like New York or the the high-income club looks like in relationship to the low-income club. For example, people are more educated in New York. Big surprise. Um, The New York uh, metropolitan economy specializes in different sectors from what you find in towns like Brownsville, Texas. Finance, high tech, pharma, and stuff like that compared to uh, manufacturing um, and certainly, uh, and, and basically assembly activities. So these are, we can identify, roughly speaking, the big development clubs of any economy. And that's one of the things that we do in the field of urban and regional economics and geography, is we look for, we look to identify these determinants and, and what the pattern is and how they change over time. So what's interesting, though, about our case, I think, is that greater LA and the San Francisco Bay Area are not different in the way that New York and Brownsville are. Greater LA and the San Francisco Bay Area are essentially in from the large-scale identification strategy uh, perspective, they're in the same development club, certainly in 1970. 
They are both big, rich, highly educated, with lots of science and technology, good and similar government structures, good natural environments. L.A. has the best weather in the world, by the way, everybody. If you want to debate that, I'll defend that position. Similar geographical location, same tax rates, same tax structure. So here we are not between development clubs, but within them. And yet within a development club, a per capita income difference of 30% opens up in the space of just a few decades. So this is a question that hasn't well been tackled by the existing literature using very large-scale statistical samples of cities. Okay, this is L.A. This is basically the coast of Southern California. And uh, the, um, you can sort of cut off the, 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 the right-hand side of that. It's all desert. Um, somewhere out there, the, the great metropolitan blob of L.A., fades off into a non-metropolitan space. Um, It's commonly called the five-county metropolitan area, and uh, the core parts of it are the county designated as Los Angeles, which has the city of L.A. in it. That's the shaded part, is the municipal borders of the city of L.A. within the county of L.A. County of L.A. is the biggest county in America. It has 10 million people in one county. So it gives you some sense of scale here. The one south of it is uh, a very, uh, a kind of a, it's kind of like a posh California suburb like you see on television shows. All right, that's downtown LA, which contrary to a lot of popular impression in Europe, actually looks really pretty, especially when there's no smog. Um, and that's the other side of LA, right, where people spend a lot of time. Um, that's another part of LA. That's actually one of the streets I drive up when I go from my house to UCLA to go to work. That's called Beverly Hills. Okay. (laughs) The Bay Area uh, is uh, Northern California, arranged around this uh, San Francisco Bay. It has has, um, 10 uh, smaller counties, and uh, it has the city of San Francisco at its core, and at the southern end of that bay is uh, Silicon Valley which will be, of course, an important part of our story. Across the bay from San Francisco, the town called Berkeley, that's where I went to school, and it's the center of, you know, hippiedom and revolution and stuff like that and and all that. So San Francisco's really pretty, right? It's got a nice bridge, a nice downtown, a lot of water, very cute, right? Cute houses that everybody loves. Now, here's the problem for L.A. That's what happens to incomes, That's what I mentioned. Now, some people said to us when we wanted to look at just these two cities, how representative is it? And it turns out that San Francisco is not unrepresentative in the sense of being an unfair comparison to L.A. because there's a whole bunch of metropolitan areas in America that do much better than L.A. San Francisco is not exceptional. The real question is, why is L.A. leaving the club or appears to be possibly leaving the club of which it was once a part. Now, when one measures things like convergence and divergence, a set of um, not uninteresting technical details uh, presents itself. That is, to establish the case that divergence is real, you have to engage with a number of questions that are generated by... Um, a lot of very good detailed work in urban and regional economics. So, for example, 
the almost immediate reaction that people who know California uh, have is, oh, of course, but you're just measuring nominal income. Housing is, on average, more expensive in the San Francisco Bay Area than L.A., and that cancels out the difference. So your, your difference is an optical illusion. It turns out that's not true. The, there, are, there are somewhat higher housing prices in San Francisco, but when you do very detailed work using, as we did, using individual records from the U.S. Census on housing acquisition, housing costs, and so on, you find that the difference in housing costs does not even come close to canceling out the aggregate or nominal difference in incomes. So the difference in, what in the terminology of economics is a real per capita income difference, not of 30%, but of about 20 the other thing that people, and it's, a good, and it's a good reaction to have to this kind of evidence, is, well, maybe San Francisco is a great deal wealthier now, but maybe it's more unequal than Los Angeles. And if that were the case, then you would be talking about different impacts on different parts of the population, possibly making you making us represent unfairly the outcomes to L.A., which maybe is offering more opportunity to people. It turns out that's not the case either. So both of our regions are highly unequal. For those of you who know this, they have Gini coefficients of about 50. That makes them in the developed world. Now, America is a highly uh, unequal country among the set of developed countries, American metropolitan areas tend to be more unequal than the country as a whole. California is more unequal than most of the rest of America. And L.A. and San Francisco are more unequal than the rest of California. So you get these Gini coefficients that look like those that you find in the developing world or close to them. But they are equally unequal, meaning they have comparable Gini coefficients, very similar trajectory of growing inequality, but it's a similar trajectory. So what this means is that when you examine the incomes at any point in the distributions of the two metropolitan areas, you get that people in the Bay Area at a given point will be richer than their counterpart at the same point in L.A.'s distribution. So if you're interested in comparing cities, this is actually a really important step to go through to think about what you're saying when you use these kinds of comparative numbers. The... uh, the point here is uh, also that when, you, when, we, when, when one examines just two cities, you are able to do this, what we call very deep dive, really look beneath the surface of the numbers in a way that turns out to be when you have an N of two, as we say in research, rather than an N of 337 or 2,000 or whatever, you're able to look under, uh, under the appearances or things you might have missed in larger sample sizes. The other thing that we did is um, we responded to an issue that came up early in the project, which is, well, there's the issue of geographical aggregation. These are very big regions. And like any major metropolitan region, say greater London, there's going to be a geographical distribution of this wealth and poverty. And, of course, L.A. and San Francisco have many areas of extreme wealth. Um, L.A. in particular has a lot of the... L.A. and Manhattan have the zip codes or the postal codes 
with the extreme high incomes that you find from the world plutocracy living in them, just like you do here in central London. And the Bay Area is getting them because the geeks are really rich now. So you get places like Bel Air and Newport Beach, Beverly Hills, Pacific Heights, or Hillsboro. But these tales are not the story. If, you, if we break down the regions by, by sub-regions, what we find is that in the San Francisco Bay Area, 75% of the population lives in counties whose personal income is above that of the wealthiest Southern California county. So we're not just uh, telling a story about L.A. that is due to the failure of one of its subregions. It's rather a regional story that holds up. Okay, so I, I make those remarks because, um, again, these are, these are important sort of ways of getting beneath the data and seeing methodologically what you have to do if you want to make a case about economic development in a comparative perspective, which I think many of us do. Okay, now, how do we explain this? The obvious point that almost everybody agrees on is that the economic bases of these two regions uh, uh, departed from their convergence uh, with the advent of the new economy. The Bay Area is clearly the winner. It wins Silicon Valley. It refocuses its finance sector at the high end with open capital markets on investment banking and those kind of things. It's not like London or New York in size, but it is in the same market segments as the great world finance centers. And it subsequently uh, adds on the growth of IT-related corporate headquarters, a lot of new companies that you think of in your daily life today, like, say, Apple, Google, Facebook, eBay, right, and on and on and on. Household names that are entrepreneurial companies in the Bay Area in the 70s and are corporate giants in 2015. Greater LA is not such a new economy. Greater LA had the US's biggest concentration of aviation, aerospace, defense in 1970. It loses a lot of it. It loses a lot of it through restructuring and because of the end of the Cold War. It also, LA loses a lot of its corporate headquarters. It had quite a lot of them, notably, in agriculture, petroleum, mining, things like that, they leave. LA's economy grows in light manufacturing, such as clothing. It's now, here's the success story of Southern California. The entertainment sector grows, meaning movies and television, or what is commonly referred to as Hollywood. And it also gains in transportation and logistics, being, becoming the West Coast's biggest port and in container terms, America's biggest port by capturing the trans-Pacific trade from China, the merchandise trade. And right now it's losing out in biotech. So this is an easy shot uh, to describe it, but it doesn't explain anything. Here are just some, some quick figures where, we, where you pull out the key tradable industry groups in the two economies, and uh, you can see some of the some of the detail of what, what I uh, showed there. But what stands out, of course, is that um, in terms of share of the local economies, and it's a story I'll come back to, information technology, that is Silicon Valley, the computer revolution, they were about equal shares of the two economies in 1970. 
So we'll see. L.A. was well positioned. Um, and uh, yet, when you look in 2010, you see that information technology is four times bigger as a share of the Bay Area economy in 2010 from L.A. L.A. keeps the same share. Uh, the Bay Area multiplies it by four. Um, you can see the drop in the aerospace and defense sector from 3.4% to less than 1% of the L.A. economy. You can see the growth of the logistics sector. That's port. That's the port and trade sector. And you can see the growth of the entertainment sector from two-thirds of 1% to 2.5% in the L.A. economy. That's the big success story. So now, why are our San Francisco specializations better for economic development in, uh, uh, in, in any kind of uh, meaningful way, the answer is actually quite simple. They pay better wages. The San Francisco economic core is now composed of industries that pay higher wages on average. So when we look at, the, at, at, at a sample of the tradable industries in that region, they... They, 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 pay, they, they pay better than the tradable industries in L.A. But here's another way, though, that, that I think a two-city comparison is particularly interesting. When you have very large samples of, uh, of cities, you can't go very deeply into the activity base of the cities in a comparative way, simply because you lose your degrees of freedom in research. Things get too complicated. When you do two-city two, two regions like this, you can peer very deeply in And here's what we found. Looking inside those sectors, like say looking inside IT, for example, we find that San Francisco is engaged in higher quality segments of the activities that it is specialized in, or it is engaged in what we call more sophisticated tasks in its work. So in other words, so the difference between the two metro areas is what you do in broad terms, but also what you do within comparable areas of specialization. My high-tech is not the same as your high-tech. This is a point that fades away in virtually all comparative metropolitan research that uses rather aggregated categories like, like say, um, IT or making computers or doing aerospace. These are highly complex sectors with many subsectors within them, and oftentimes the numbers we use for large samples of cities simply mask that the differences are at this level, not, the level of, not entirely at the level of what you do or in broad categories. So you can see this really clearly. These are very detailed breakdowns of types of, of professions or occupations in, in the economy. And you can, this is in the IT sector. So within, so these are what in we call six-digit uh, categories. As any of you know, who work on numbers know that we're getting pretty detailed here. And look at the differences in wages. It, for people who are supposedly, at least according to the census, doing the same job. All right? So... There might be, as we'll come back to, some unobserved source of heterogeneity. That's the way an economist would put it. But there, and it is possible that this source of heterogeneity is, uh, it's, possibly, it's possible that it's personal, meaning 
You're a a custom computer programmer in L.A., and I'm one in San Francisco, and I make a lot more money than you because you can't, the census can't see it, but I'm just a lot better than you are, right? There's something about me that makes me more productive, but not in a way that the census can observe. That's actually a really, it's a real possibility. Another decent hypothesis would be that we're actually quite similar in our personal characteristics, and the census is accurately getting that we have the same level of qualification and we're in the same profession, but the difference is where we work, or what we might call a regional effect. Either of those hypotheses would be very interesting. They've been, they've been played with a little bit in labor economics, but we do not have a lot of light that's shed on them, but they're very systematic and very dramatic, as you can see, in the data that we dug out and that you will never see in research on large-scale samples of cities. You just won't have this emerge. Now, a way to corroborate that is, and I can now sort it, I can give you at least a tentative answer to whether it's the personal characteristics or the region that matters. In America, we have data sets that enable us to take occupations in the economic census and to convert them into what's called the task content, meaning what kind of work you do, whether the work is manual, whether it's abstract, whether it's cognitive, whether it's not cognitive, whether it's routine, whether it's non-routine. And what you see is, if you look at the blue line and you look at the red line, there are a lot of other things we did in here to corroborate this. I'll give you the simple point. The Bay Area has gone to being an economy that has a much higher composition of abstract, cognitive, non-routine kinds of work. Or you can translate that real simply, highly skilled work that gets paid a lot. Compared to LA, where the content in tasks of the regional economy has split apart from that of the Bay Area in a fairly radical way. And what this is suggesting is that the effect on people's wages, on why people in the same profession are making different wages, is probably a regional effect, that they're being made to do different things in their two respective economies. So, all right, so now this leads us, if you take that preliminary evidence, that we show that San Francisco's specialization Uh, went in a new economy way and that there was a a, a divergence or a gap opening up in the quality of specialization between these two economies. Then then the the, the question for our research is why? Or it's what we call a whodunit story, like in a Hollywood detective movie. And we actually organized our research project very much in this way. We decided we had a very open mind about why the specializations and the work and the wages would go in such different directions from 1970 onward. And we, we essentially, we inventoried every decent theory we could pull out of the literature in urban and regional and labor economics and industrial economics, and we tried to the best of our ability to subject them to a rigorous data onslaught. And so we organized it as sort of like pursuing clues a whodunit story or a treasure hunt. So the question is why? Okay. Now, 
A principle, I think the first instinct one would have if one is um, coming from urban and um, regional economics is you would look to labor supply. That is, you would, your instinct would be to say that the San Francisco Bay Area maybe either had a better labor endowment, a more highly skilled labor endowment, or that it was capable of attracting through migration uh, a higher labor endowment and of essentially shedding its lesser skilled labor endowments, thus leading to a progressively wider gap in the quality of labor between the two regions. And this supply side, uh, this, this supply of labor would then allow the, uh, allow the different industries corresponding to that labor to locate and cluster and agglomerate in a progressively self-reinforcing sort of snowball a type of action, driving a wedge in performance between the two economies. That's what we might call a supply, a supply-driven explanation for the unfolding of this divergence. In this kind of explanation that you find very much in the regional science and urban economics literature, the demand side of specialization fades into the background. We specialize by having or getting the right kind of people. Now, I'm caricaturing a bit here. Of course, in any, uh, in any kind of realistic explanation, we know that it's um, it's something like we call constantly reversing causality, right? You get supply side, it, it brings in demand. You get more supply, you get more demand. And what happens is they go like that. But you have to start somewhere if you're looking uh, at a kind of empirical question like this to figure out what started it or what, what really, what, what threw the switch that drove these different pathways of evolution. Otherwise, there's nothing that you can say that's ultimately determinate or useful about divergence. So the problem, of course, is that merely saying, well, yeah, the labor endowments are different, it's circular. It doesn't cut into the circle of causes, and it doesn't tell you anything about this chicken chicken or egg question, what started it? Was it the labor? Was it the supply of labor or the demand for labor? And for any kind of meaningful application of research, we've got to know this. We have to know what buttons to push in policy if we have any buttons to push at all, or at least in what sequence we would push them. So we think that the preponderance of evidence in our case suggests that the labor supply is not what did it. Okay? And, the re- and, and, and uh, we, don't have a, we don't have a perfect proof of this, but we have some pretty good evidence that suggests that supply alone wouldn't have been adequate to throw the switch. Because, first of all, uh, the things you would expect if it was supply alone is that you'd expect a big gap in skills at the beginning. So something is there that signals to firms in different, different kinds of firms, we're going to go to San Francisco and we're going to go to L.A. You would expect this to be the thing that sets it off. You would expect there to be a widening gap in the levels and distribution of skills in the labor forces of the two regions. And you would also expect wages for people with similar skills or characteristics to be roughly similar. In other words, you would expect the difference to be in the proportions of different kinds of people in the regions, right, that would have thrown the switch and said, the supply for my kind of labor is in the Bay Area. The supply for my kind of labor is in L.A. So in 1970, though, the problem is there were really very minor differences in skills between the two regions, 
and very small differences in wages for any given skill group. Low, low, little education, medium level of education, high level, um, gender distinguished, uh, ethnic group, immigration, and so on. The wages are very close at the beginning of our period, and the, and, and the proportions are, co- are quite close. Now, there is, as we would imagine, a widening gap in the overall composition of skills as measured by education uh, across the period. So there are more skilled migrants that get it, that the action is in San Francisco. And so over time, it's absolutely true that there are now, now a much higher proportion of college-educated, whether American-born or foreign-born people in the Bay Area than in L.A. But again, that's not explaining the sequence. That's just telling you what the outcome is. So what's most striking is what happens if you clone people from one labor, from, from any group, and put them in the two regions over time? So what I mean by this is let's take a, uh, let's take, um, a 30-year-old male with a secondary school education and no more, who immigrated from Mexico five years ago, and you, take, and you clone this person with all these identical characteristics, and you put him in L.A., or you put him in San Francisco. What happens is that gaps in wages within these categories of people open up that are much bigger than the overall gap in the distribution of types of people or the composition of the, wage, of the labor force in each region. So what's driving a lot of the differences in wages is not just that we have more skilled people, but that for every category of people, we pay them more in the Bay Area than in L.A. So in other words, if you cloned yourself with exactly your same characteristics, at the end of the period, you'd earn a lot more in San Francisco than in L.A., and it's true for every, almost every control group that we could identify in the labor force. And again, here's the value of a deep dive, just two regions. You can really work the labor force data in enormous details in ways that you can't do with large samples of cities. This stuff simply wouldn't be on your radar screen in very large samples. So there's just some examples. Take a university graduate and clone them, and the Bay Area does a lot better. Take any, any category, take your immigrants and, uh, and, and stratify them by educational attainment. The gaps open up that are simply um, enormous, especially from high school on up, and especially as you get to skilled ones. So we conclude by kind of circling the wagons of evidence around this question that labor demand is what seems to have been driving a lot of the uh, wage differences. So the ending point is that all skills are better rewarded in the Bay Area. And we think it means that the transition was driven by labor demand. Now, this is not a proof in the sense that we would consider it a proof in urban economics with a large-scale sample and some fancy econometric techniques. But the deep dive enables us to ask the question that now, I think, really needs to get into the wider uh, urban and labor markets literature because when you look deeply, you find things that don't conform to the standard accepted explanations. So supply doesn't seem to be an independent explanation. Now, I would just, by the way, say on this, 
This is stuff that makes us very, very skeptical about fashionable supply-driven policy recommendations that you have out there in the urban policy world. Like every city should become creative and attract creative hipster people because by some miracle, if you get the creative hipsters, your economy, meaning your firms or your demand side, will follow. Our evidence suggests that it might have been the reverse. People go to where the jobs are, right? The jobs don't go, uh, or at least in this instance, to where the people are. So we're back to the whodunit story, okay? Having sort of looked at that one, why did specialization change so differently? And I think clues you will now find if I tell you three little stories. First of all, why did the Bay Area get Silicon Valley? Silicon Valley, I hope you all know, is the undisputed world center of tech, of tech right? It is by far, right, way, way, by orders of magnitude, by far, the center of the IT, computer, internet, and communications revolution. And all those household names that you have, they all come from Silicon Valley. So, but here's the problem. Why did they get it? What was this, was it their starting point? If you look at LA in the 1960s, LA had extraordinary endowments in semiconductor design and manufacture because it had the military industries that, 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 that built the best, most sophisticated semiconductors for using in guiding airplanes and missiles and making the communications uh, systems for guiding them work. So the companies in LA that were in the defense industry were the big, the big um, early producers of good semiconductors. Now what happened is, to kind of make a long story short, is that they stayed in their boutique luxury market, which was producing very expensive semiconductors for the US Defense Department, and they got lazy about commercialization because of that. Now, um, in San Francisco, it was not a foregone conclusion by any means that they would become the world center of semiconductor manufacturing. Hewlett-Packard had existed since 1938, and it had had the federal government, meaning defense, as a client too. So actually it was just kind of like a Northern California version of the big defense companies. Now, what happened was that there were a few newer kind of, there there were some other companies like Fairchild Semiconductor, HP was in there too, and Xerox especially, which was, Xerox was a company that basically made photocopying machines in the 1960s. It was not, um, it was not involved in, in, in any of this kind of IT revolution. But Xerox set up a research center in Palo Alto called Xerox Park, Palo Alto Research Center. And it was at the Palo Alto Research Center, as it turns out, that the first ideas about commercialization of semiconductors for sort of ordinary products emerge. Um, One of the people who worked there at the time, who was now a professor at Berkeley, um, he told us essentially that the the Xerox Park was this kind of very strange research center. It's now very famous in Silicon Valley folklore. And what it did is it mixed, as he put it, hippie academics and buzzed cut engineers. Now, in the context of the San Francisco Bay Area, that's actually a very uh, meaningful statement because San Francisco was the center of the American counterculture, 
But a lot of the scientific or academic scientific establishment of the Bay Area was more counterculture than it was mainstream culture at that time. And this culture, these two cultures actually mixed at the Xerox Park Center. And what happened was that this academic hippie technology connection, they were anti-Pentagon, a lot of, especially the, the academics. And they were interested in the revolution of daily life. Um, what they wanted was to make technology as a way to simplify, ha, 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 I'm saying because we know where it led us, and improve our ordinary lives, right? Now, this isn't, this isn't just um, sort of a quote from one person. It comes from the man himself, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, he gave a commencement address at, San Fr- at Stanford in 2005. And at the end of the commencement address, which you can look at on YouTube, go right to the end, like the last two minutes, and what he says is, you want to know what really inspired me? It was what's called the Whole Earth Catalog. Whole Earth Catalog was the Bible of what's called the alternative technology movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was a manual about new technologies and making them appropriate useful, simple, beautiful, and not luxurious. And so, Duguid, Steve Jobs, and a whole bunch of other people have talked about the importance of what they call this mixing of milieus that happened in the San Francisco Bay Area, so that actually the buzz-cut engineers, the people who were working for the Pentagon and in the older firms like Hewlett-Packard, they met through Xerox Park and a whole bunch of other fora in the Bay Area, and they got the idea that, yes, we might be able to do something new and interesting with this. This never happened in Los Angeles. The client groups of the, of the aerospace firms that were making the best semiconductors in the world were all defense, and there were no hippies to talk to, or they didn't want to talk to them down there. They were probably too weird. Okay. So there were no milieu-crossing social business networks in greater LA to draw the technologists out of the old economy and into the new economy. And that's pretty much true even today. I'll show you some evidence on that. Moreover, this vision of things happened, this vision of things leaked into Bay Area leadership very early on. There's an organization of of basically the entire top corporate structure of the San Francisco Bay Area called the Bay Area Council. And it sees the virtues of this mix early. It creates an inclusive coalition and formalizes the belief structure that, yes, we are the center of the new economy. We know this because we studied 30 years of their reports and we did content analysis on the different leadership groups in the two regions. So we're not making it up from a few quotes. We have a systematic content-based evidence on how the leadership groups in the two regions saw themselves at the beginning of the new economy age. Second story, biotech. So biotech, this exactly mirrors what I just told you about IT in terms of the two regions having very good factor endowments at the beginning, but taking them in different directions uh, within the new economy. So biotech is developed in the late 1970s. The science for gene splicing is developed simultaneously in Los Angeles and San Francisco. In uh, the University of California at San Francisco, which is the medical branch of the university, by two people, um, Stan, um, Cohen and Boyer, 
and at the City of Hope Hospital in Hollywood. You can see the names. Um, Stanley Boyer actually attempted to go down from San Francisco to L.A., and he, and he, and he attempted the first startup in Los Angeles. And um, he set up, actually, uh, Amgen using uh, a partner in L.A., and he, uh, he, used a professor from, um, he used a professor from UCLA and venture capital money from Silicon Valley. And he set up a board for Amgen, which, by the way, is the world's biggest bio- independent biotech company today. I think it's just been bought up by someone, but it's the world's biggest biotech company. Its board was shared by people from Caltech, California Institute of Technology, UCLA, and University of California at Santa Barbara, all three Southern California universities. And it has, it, 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 it goes into big research leading to, um, to uh, the sequencing and cloning of hormones and all kinds of things. But early on, Amgen, so it gets established in Southern California, not in the Bay Area, and, uh, but early on, the scientists are kicked out of management. So what happens is that it goes for, a, for an, a, a, an IPO, an initial public offering, to raise big money because it's facing a bankruptcy. They bring in, it's the first one to go for an IPO, they bring in New York financing, and they bring in a management team from Chicago. So what they do is they model Amgen after the kinds of firms that we know from the old economy. A big firm, they put a stable workforce, a division between managers and the, science, and the scientist workers, or what we might call very Fordist. It's very successful on its own terms. That's not a problem. Amgen turns out to be probably one of the best places to work in the biotech industry. Stanley Boyer ret- retreats back to Northern California. He teams up with a young entrepreneur from the IT world and creates a new form of firm that is co-run by scientists and managers called Genentech. The Genentech model of what we might call science-based capitalism is rapidly imitated in the Bay Area. And they create a network with a lot of rotation in and out of firms where the scientists are encouraged to keep publishing, doing academic work, bringing in new ideas, and they're, and they're, and they're encouraged, actually, to, oh, it's fine, you can work for Genentech, but you can start up another firm, too, if you want. That's not our problem. We want to just do, we just like in this for the innovation. So what you get in the Bay Area is a system where, over time, the scientists and the venture capitals in, in biotech look just like the scientists and venture capital people in IT, meaning they've worked with one another, they're going in and out of companies, they're failing, they're succeeding, and you get like a sort of an ecosystem of networks in the Bay Area. So Bay Area has no big hit firm like Amgen, but many biotech firms. You get in the Bay Area a big cluster, whereas in LA you get one big successful standalone firm isolated from its regional environment. You get deep and wide entrepreneurial networks in the Bay Area and hardly any LA. So the result is today, the Bay Area is a center of a big cluster and LA isn't. Now, third little story is Hollywood. Hollywood is actually LA's success story and it relates to the new economy in an interesting way. So this is an LA cluster that is stronger and bigger than ever. Um, Greater LA has 48% of US employment in this sector in 1990, 59% today. In in the urban and regional business, we would call this 
a really a, like a total supernova cluster. There's almost nothing observable of these kinds of shares of geographical concentration that you can find anywhere. And Hollywood was actually a new economy industry before its time. In the 1950s and 60s, it was like a factory system. It's what used to be called the studio system. The stars um, would come to work in the studios every day at 8 a.m., and they'd stay till 5. The, the carpenters, the, uh, the, the photographers, the electricians, they'd all come to work, and they'd crank out movies on an assembly line. And the reason they could do this is that each of the American movie studios, it owned its own uh, theater chains. So they had monopolies. That means that if you were in Pittsburgh, you had to go see movies made by Warner Brothers. And if you were in Chicago, you had the choice between, uh, between uh, MGM and Warner Brothers, but not any of the other studios. And what happened was uh, that system broke down because the American government broke up the studio chain, the, the, the forced the studios to sell their movie exhibition theaters so they could create competitive local markets for, for exhibition. And then television came along and cut into the audience. And so Hollywood was faced with this huge crisis in the 1950s, which is our cost base is way too high, our products are too standardized, we have to innovate, and how are we going to do product differentiation? Well, we have to now ch totally change our production organization. And so what they did is they create they created a flexible networked production system consisting of project-by-project project work, or what's called an ecosystem. And it functions just like Silicon Valley or, or the biotech cluster. The problem with it is that um, it's too small to float the Southern California economy. Silicon Valley is proportionally four times greater than Hollywood, and there's a lot more spillover. Hollywood speaks a language of art, not of engineering and science. And Hollywood's leaders, as one of them told us, I really don't know much about L.A. I have a house in Malibu, another house in Beverly Hills, an office in Century City, and an office in Manhattan and an apartment in Manhattan, which gives you kind of an idea of the mental geography of the leaders of Hollywood. Okay, so chasing down these clues now. So these stories and others that we examine in this book, in aviation, logistics, and other key tradable sectors, they suggested to us that the economist stories that we test in the first, few, um, <clears throat> the first few chapters of the book about endowments and prices, they get us only so far. They are important contributions to the story, but they're not the end. <clears throat> so we took on the question of why were the endowments transformed differently in the two regions? And there, we took on, we, we took on a story of testing a whole bunch of other forces the economic development policies, the beliefs of leaders, the structure and network of leaders and community involvement, entrepreneurship, social capital, and political preferences. So in the book, all of these are subjected to empirical examination. And what did we find? And this is, this is really, I'll, I'm going to summarize quite briefly, but you'll see the conclusions are really strong. First of all, formal economic development policies like mega projects, infrastructure, tax levels, and labor training had no discernible effect on the, on the divergence, with one exception I'll return to in a minute. Neither region had del significant deliberate cluster or specialization policies. Silicon Valley was not made because people in government in the Bay Area decided to make a cluster, nor was Hollywood, nor were the biotech clusters. 
Both regions, by the way, have chaotic and minimal data on their economic development policies and what they cost. So this is another interesting discovery, is that billions of dollars are spent on things and government can't tell you what they're doing, what it costs, what the opportunity costs, or anything like that. And I mean, we really tried. Okay, then we looked into something we call beliefs and worldviews. Now, Douglas North, who got a Nobel Prize in economics and institutional economics, says, beliefs have a recursive relationship to development. So, like I mentioned a minute ago, we did content analysis on 30 years of reports by major regional business roundtables and networking forums, Association of Bay Area Governments, Southern California Association of Governments, the Bay Area Council, the LA Business Roundtable. So these are both public and private, we might say, talk shops for the elite. And we found huge differences. Southern California hardly ever mentions the new economy in self-describing. The policy attention in Southern California is essentially crowded out by many crises of the 80s and 90s. There was a lot of loss of manufacturing, there were riots, there were earthquakes, aerospace conversion with the end of the Cold War gets hardly any attention, and the reports keep giving us an old economy view of things, which is, if only we could drive our costs down, then we'll get manufacturing back. Essentially, sort of saying, let's compete with, let's compete with the US South or with developing countries. So the policy attention was crowded out by the one strategy they did have, which was to build a big port. And they did that. They built a big port. They succeeded in attracting the Asian trade. They did it with good intentions. They generated a lot of jobs for low-skill immigrants arriving, and they captured the advantage of natural geography. Well, actually, it was a fake port, but it's a good geographical position. But this generated low- and medium-wage jobs, a winning strategy that turns out to be a losing strategy for the region, but generates an easy hit for the political class. The Bay Area systematically sees itself as a central node, perhaps the center of the new economy, especially the Bay Area Council. They have a more comprehensive coalition and a more forward-looking one. And And it comes out really clearly when you analyze what they are saying about themselves. This is actually kind of an interesting way to look at economic development is, How do organizations decide it? So then we decided, we said, okay, that's what they're saying, but we all know that there's a problem in qualitative research, which is people can say anything. And you need to actually always corroborate what people say with data. Okay, almost done. I I, I really am. He never believes me. I really am at the end of the story. So we actually did uh, an analysis of the networks, meaning that we took the top corporate leadership of the two regions, and we looked at how, how they sat on each other's boards of directors and also how those boards of directors crisscrossed over or not into various other kinds of prominent organizations in the regional economy like, like foundations or non-governmental organizations. And what we find is that there's a radical difference in the leadership, in the objective leadership structures that emerges. These two regions, uh, by the end of the period, at the beginning of the period, they have a similar level of interlocks between the major organizations. By the end of it, the Bay Area has substantially higher ties both within industries and between them, and LA's has totally fragmented. So this shows up, in other words, even within a given sector of the economy, that the Bay Area is more, its leaders are more unified. Um, we found all kinds of corroborative evidence for this story I'm telling you. 
Same thing happens with innovator entrepreneur networks. In, in the Bay Area, cat patenting takes off, but more, most especially, university patent patenters in Northern California are more tied into creating firms and into relating to each other than in Southern California. A radical difference. They have almost the same level of patenting per person in 1970. The Bay Area has 10 times more in 2010. Same thing. So, we, so we, what we're getting to is that the story is that the Bay Area starts to emerge with a totally different kind of organizational and network structure and culture than Los Angeles from very similar uh, starting points. Same thing is true of civic networks. All right, so this is what we call, and this is kind of the point of it, this is what we call the relational infrastructure of regions. There's nothing exceptional in the beginning in the Bay Area. Um, in fact, the Bay Area looks very similar in 1980. It looks like the IT revolution happened. They're already starting to go down a normal product cycle. They're creating factories all over America that look just like any other factories. What happened was that somewhere in that, this culture and the networks and objective structures and the belief structures came about that, that, re, that, that, that turned this industry and the subsequent ones that would follow down, this, down the structural pathway of the new economy. So <clears throat> what happens is that the, what we now know, it's all famous in folklore, the spin-off, ecosystemic, highly flexible... Uh, kind of self-consciously innovative economy of the Bay Area, the rejection of the, the scale-dominated, standardization-dominated model of creating firms right, that had been the hallmark of the old economy, that occurs in the Bay Area. It doesn't occur in L.A. L.A. has really good factor endowments in almost every, every new economy field, but it turns them into old economy forms of production and loses by doing what it did well in the past. It loses in the new period. For whatever reason, the, the Bay Area gets tipped in this direction of doing things organizationally in a different way, and that becomes self-reproducing. So this is a detective story with many loose ends. We can't get a silver bullet for causal explanation, but it seems like the gaps in standard explanations call for this kind of enlargement that we, that we argue for in the book. Relational infrastructure, the nature of organizations, the attitudes, the mentalities, and how essentially these economies organizationally combine their factors and end up using them differently, or what we're going to call the regional zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. These soft dimensions co-evolve with the hard facts of their regional economies. They co-evolve, they transform the endowments ultimately, they lead to breakthroughs, they lead to agglomeration processes, and they mutually reinforce. So here's the lesson. What works in one period doesn't automatically work in the next. It's not so much or not entirely what you inherit in terms of factor endowments. There are moments in economic history when something has to happen to make you transform those factor endowments, as well as, of course, keep attracting the ones that are appropriate to the new period. This is, I think, um, something that's been not, not present enough in accounts of economic development, which are focused either on factor endowments 
or on the transfer or on the quantitative transformation of factor endowments, and not what we might call this kind of re- this kind of um, this kind of use of them, or it's sort of like taking the ingredients and putting them in the pot and knowing how to cook them into a tasty dish. The recipe changes from one period to the next. And I think this, this deep dive shows this uh, very clearly and crisply. So, thank you. Sorry I talked too long. I always do. I think we want to turn over the questions to uh, Tom and Nadi. Second, yeah. We got, uh, thank you very much, Michael. (laughs) Thank you very much, Michael. We got a a few minutes for questions from the audience. So, who wants to start? And the questions can be, as Michael said, directed not just to Michael, but also to Tom and to Nadi, who are sitting next to me. Yes, over there. (coughs) There's a microphone coming. Well, it's really, really two questions. First question is the obvious one, which is why doesn't, you know, if, uh, if, it, if an equivalent person can make more money, 20% higher uh, on real terms in San Francisco than they can in Los Angeles, why doesn't internal migration eliminate that? That's, 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 that's a narrow question. The broader question is this. Um, is, did San Francisco have an alternative strategy in the 1970s? In other words, to some extent, what evolved in San Francisco, was it a question of necessity being the mother of invention? It, it seems to me that L.A. had a very clear alternative strategy, and, and it had a kind of an, an, an inbuilt base which it could conceive of as continuing, whereas maybe San Francisco at that point in time was kind of forced because, you, you, to be honest, you never really give an explanation for why this alternative relationship infrastructure evolved in San Francisco as opposed to L.A. And so I'm wondering if it isn't a question of necessity being the mother invention because there was not such an obvious alternative for San Francisco, so they had to invent themselves. Uh, okay, so uh, a, a couple of responses. One, I mean, in terms of the internal migration story, uh, I think there's a couple of factors. One, and I think Michael alluded to this in his talk, that uh, y- y- within the kinds of classes that we use to talk about, let's say, industries or occupations, there's room for a great deal of internal heterogeneity. And so uh, I think, and, and you know, Michael hinted at this, but I think we could talk more about it, that there is... Uh, considerable differentiation, we think, which is hard to detect in a sort of a clear sense, but what that you see in wages that says that, uh, a, let's say, a certain person doing a certain kind of occupation earns a lot more in the Bay Area that suggests that it's not just a matter of if the, that sort of equivalent worker moved from L.A., they would magically be earning more, but that there's also a sorting process going on by which the Bay Area is pulling the most talented individuals. So part of that is a differentiation story. Um, I think to your, and I'm I'm sure we could say more about it. In terms of the second question, I think, um, and again, you know, Michael talked about this to some extent, but there's a moment at which uh, Fairchild, for instance, in the 1960s, and so in the early 1960s, there's what's called the McNamara Depression. Robert McNamara is the Secretary of Defense, and he does this big sort of drawdown of defense spending. Um, And at that time, both the Bay Area and uh, Los Angeles are uh, engaged in semiconductor production at a large scale with the major client, really the singular client being the Department of Defense. 
And the two regions respond, their companies respond very, very differently to that crisis. L.A. sort of hunkers down and thinks that it's going to, you know, just, just uh, you know, make it through, whereas companies like Fairchild in the Bay Area explicitly say, we're going to change our orientation as a result of this shock and shift towards more consumer-facing applications of this technology. So, I mean, that's one particular anecdote, but it suggests that their, their situations weren't all that different, but because of their sort of organizational ecology, they responded to them in very different ways. More questions? Uh, well, I could just uh, a little comment on that. First, I, I think that your first question deserves a little bit more um, attention and respect, actually, in the sense that I don't think we have actually an answer to why the plumber who went to L.A., didn't go to San Fran, apart from maybe he just doesn't know that the average income of plumbers in San Fran are the same as in L.A. That could be one explanation. Um, but it is a good question. So, and it's an important question because in economics, you would expect them to move to San Francisco. So, uh, Michael, do you have anything to say about that important question? Um, no, I, I, I mean, look, there's, there's, a quantity, there's a quantity issue there. Meaning, let's say, you're, let's say you're a Latino in L.A., and you have some cousin who's gone to the Bay Area, and the cousin says to you, I'm earning a lot more money than you are. And you say, well, maybe I should come up there. You, 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 th- th- this is the information question. Are you, are you informed enough to know you're making a lot more money, but there's not as many jobs up there? I'm down here. I'll make less money, but there's more jobs. But there's another thing about the wage-setting thing, which I think we don't get deeply enough into in any of the literature. It's the effective experience on wages. You clone these two people. You send one of them to the Bay Area, and one of them stays in L.A., but you put them in different environments. And what happens is the opportunities for them to do learning on the basis of their initial endowments is different, and it drives a wedge into their wages. Those are all kinds of you know, like further work type testable propositions that emerge from this kind of uh, examination. All right, Vernon. Uh, I'm going to push a little more in this. Uh, L.A. has grown more slowly, uh, or, sorry, grown more quickly than San Francisco over the last 40 years, despite this now uh, real income difference where San Francisco is paying higher wages. So there are two stories out there which you didn't mention. One has to do with the fact when you put up those nice slides about what a great place San Francisco is, all the wonderful amenities and natural beauty and so on. And um, The story is of land use regulation, that San Francisco has enacted stronger land use regulation to protect its amenities from overcrowding. That's resulted in more sorting of high-income people into San Francisco and, and, you know, higher housing prices, where, again, housing prices in San Francisco are, are twice what they are in L.A. The other story, which you didn't mention, is Mexico, right? We moved 10 percent of the Mexican population to the United States. L.A. is a lot closer to Mexico than San Francisco. Any comment on that? Sure. Talk about housing regulation. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, So, I mean, these are these are obviously these are big questions, and they're the kinds of questions that we've received many, many, many times. Um, And I think we have what we found to be some reasonably satisfying answers to them. Uh, In terms of land use regulation, of course, we're familiar with this sort of hypothesis that land use regulation ends up being sort of a gatekeeping function and. and, 
selects on income rather than population. Um, what we found, and of course, I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning that land use regulation is a rather complex uh, phenomenon that manifests itself in a very wide range of forms, and I think we lack... Uh, and I'd happy to be happy to be corrected on this point, but we we lack a really systematic way to perfectly gauge the full breadth of differences in land reuse regulation across places. That being said, what what we did was to try and use the data out there that's been used by urban economists and here. So I'm thinking about uh, things like the work of Raven Sachs and uh, the the Wharton Land Use Regulation Index as a way of trying to measure whether there were indeed systematic differences in land use regulation. And what we found is that when you look at things at a regional scale, so not looking, let's say, at the city of San Francisco, which is certainly more highly regulated, let's say, than the city of LA, but rather look at these two regional economies uh, as entireties, that there isn't systematic variation that we found, that there was a lot of heterogeneity from city to city, but at the regional scale, at the metropolitan scale, we didn't detect systematic differences in land use regulation. And for that reason, we rejected that as, as, a, as a major driver of the divergence that we saw. Um, Not to mention that that would have an impact on uh, the cost of housing, which we factored in, and so that the real income difference, um, there's still a divergence in the real income difference taking into consideration the cost of housing. So, yeah. And just the last thing, on, on the proximity to the border, um, well, um, there's two things to say there. One is, of course, that Mexicans are everywhere in America now. Chicago has, I believe, the world's biggest population of Oaxacans uh, outside of Oaxaca. And you know, so this kind of proximity to the border, it had an effect a long time ago. Doesn't seem to have enough, much of, it has a declining effect. But moreover, LA immigration peak uh, for Latinos peaked bef uh, way, way before San Francisco's, which is much more recent. And according to a lot of the data, um, they should have actually had more scale acquisition uh, because of longer periods in the United States on average than the Latinos in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we just couldn't make any sense that, or we couldn't really be convinced by that 337 mile difference as a major shaper of the income difference. Moreover, one of the things that we found, just to say, can I say one more thing? We are beyond our time. Okay. I think it's better we, if we go just for two more questions so we can get a bit, a bit of diversity and then uh, sure. we can go to the book signing and book presentation. So who else? Uh, yes, over there. Thank you. Hi, I'm a BA geography student, and we've been thinking a lot about uh, the importance of studying regions and geography in particular, and some of the success and limitations in that. And I was wondering, you have um, gone into great detail with regard to San Francisco and LA, and I was wondering to what extent can your findings be applied to other cities which are diverging today? You mentioned Liverpool and London briefly, but what about Clapton and Kings Lynn and other places? Uh, and yeah, I was wondering to what extent your findings apply to those places, or do we need to have an individual geographical study for each of the regions? Okay, well, my immediate... Yeah, okay, so I do think that there's... Um, there, there are specific and individual stories for any two-city pairs that if they diverge over time, they'll diverge for different reasons. I think the value in the book is that it offers you um, what, what should you look at to tell that story. Mm -hmm. Last question. 
on the audience. Yes, over there. What lessons would you suggest um, city governments or regional governments should learn? I think you've kind of demolished a lot of the things that they have been doing for the last 20, 30, 40 years. If there were three or four things you could um, send them home with as, as things they should learn from uh, and probably do things rather than don't do things, what would they be? Okay, so it's... Um we looked back at the book and said, okay, so what, what does this mean for policy? And it's a very good question. I'll throw an idea out there. This is how I, what I take from the book is that the way that, um, the way, the way that uh, business elites, business people, um, political elites uh, perceive and view the future of their region will shape the way a lot of people view the future of their region, and somehow that will coalesce and aggregate into collective action that's strategically going somewhere. So, uh, so in terms of what policy can do, I think policy should just be very realistic about where are we today, what do we have, what strengths do we have, where do we see ourselves going, build that vision not by themselves but with the business community and other stakeholders in this city, where do we want to go to, and try to get everyone on the same page, and hope that it, that, that vision makes sense. Any reaction? All right, so uh, thank you very much. I would like to ask uh, everyone to uh, thank the authors in the usual way.